Thank you, Lynn. If we could have the first slide of the series, please. Um, so I'm speaking tonight on the example of Christ. You have the passage uh, there in front of you in Philippians uh, 2, uh, 5 to 11. Um, as um, Ken rightly said, the series is on dying and rising in Christ, the secret to spiritual growth. And I'm not going to try and define what's meant by that uh, at the moment. Um, that will come out through the series, hopefully, and uh, you'll get a better idea of what Paul was saying on that theme. I'm going to pray. Father, just pray, oh God, that you'll help me to teach your word faithfully and with accuracy and with application to our hearts so that we might be better servants of you and love you more. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. First slide, please. You're looking there at the ancient city of Philippi. And in 2015, the ancient city of Philippi was awarded um, the status of becoming a World Heritage Site. Now, why was that? Well, partially because of the extent of the site, uh, a vast array of archaeological ruins, um, quite confusing, to be honest, uh, uh, in some respects. But also because, as you see, this is a shot from on high. Because behind the city, and we're looking at the city from behind here, there was this vast hill that rose up above it. And I climbed part of the way up this goat track to see some uh, carvings of the goddess Artemis um, on the rock at a various stage, some 87 of them. Uh, and as my guide pointed out, as I became increasingly worried about the steepness of the uh, slope and the likeliness of me falling off and terminating myself, um, he just said, uh, have a look down. And he said, this is why it is a World Heritage Site. And the reason why, amongst many, it is a World Heritage Site is that what you see from this Acropolis, the high rock, is what St Paul would have seen. You don't see, when you're looking out on this valley, any modern houses, factories, roads, telephone lines at all. You just see the original uh, site itself. And this is what Paul would have seen. Slide two. And of course, it is a magnificent site. Uh, there you have the theatre where uh, gladiators would have fought, where plays would have been presented, where the mime artists and their troops who went from city to city would have presented their funny little plays. And it was a city that was penetrated by the gospel early on. We read about that in Acts chapter 16. And in fact, the gospel triumphed. Next slide, please. Because there you have one of three churches that were established at Philippi. This is the Basilica of St. John. Uh, it's a 4th century AD basilica. Uh, but it became a very significant site in the history of early Christianity. So the gospel flourished and triumphed there. But what was the culture like when Paul came to the city there? in um, 
the first century AD? And the answer is, and uh, by the way, I apologise for the smallness of the type in your sermon outline. We'll ensure that it isn't uh, quite as small next time. There's a reason for that, and I won't bore you with it, my mistake. Is that it was a colony of hard-nosed veteran soldiers from Rome. What do I mean by that? Well, in 42 BC, Augustus decided to hunt down the assassins of his adopted father, Caesar. Caesar, as we know, had been killed by Brutus. You'd at least perhaps know uh, the play of Shakespeare about it. And uh, you'd be aware that uh, uh, Caesar, Augustus, was keen to get the assassins. And he did. He hunted them down and the battle took place on the plain west of the city and he killed them all. And his troops, who were you know, pretty much old guys by then, were rewarded with land at Philippi and they established what was called a Roman colony. And the Romans were starting to do this a little bit at that time and would continue to do so. And it meant that the troops, after they retired, could retire there, set up their own little farms, produce what they wanted to, and, you know, put up their feet and drink some good wine, I guess. What colonies were, and this is the key point, were many Romes. They moved people from Rome to the area of Greece or to Asia Minor, set up a city there and they made the people that were there Roman citizens and the city was modelled on Rome. So Rome over here, transported over there. And it was a great status to have Roman citizenship living in the Greek world. So much so that Paul, in a very memorable comparison in chapter 3, not preaching on this, speaks about that we have a citizenship in heaven. Why is that? Because the Philippians are so proud of living in Macedonia and being Romans and having their Roman citizenship. It's a matter of great status. So Paul... ran into this problem in the morning. I'm just getting a ticklish throat as I start off. I've got no idea why. So Paul is writing to hard-nosed Roman freedmen or the descendants uh, Roman soldiers or the descendants of uh, veteran soldiers who settled there. Well, what were these guys like? Well, slide four, please. What you're seeing there is a monument... It is a monument of a soldier who comes from Philippi and his name is Tiberius Claudius Maximus. Notice the first two names, Tiberius, Roman Emperor, Claudius, Roman Emperor. He's probably been a slave of Tiberius Claudius, Claudius the Emperor, and has been set free by him and that's why he's adopted that name. And he lived, this guy, at the end of the first century. 
And if you look at the monument there, you can see some scribbling writing all over it. It's in Latin. It's not in Greek. Remember, it is a Roman colony. So you use the language that Rome uses, not the language that the silly Greeks use. That's inferior. And there's a lot of Latin writing there. And you see a little picture up the top. We'll come to that in a while. And what this is, is that he is setting out, because it's a tombstone in reality, his career. (coughs) And this guy, his name, Tiberius Claudius Maximus, has been extraordinarily successful. And what he does... Listen carefully to this part. This is critical. He sets out his military posts in ascending order from the least important one to the most important one. Then he sets out his military battles from the least important one to the most important one. And with each little battle, he notes who was the emperor at the time that he was fighting for. And then, as you do with these lists, you try and isolate something from your career that sums up somehow the greatness of yourself. And it's quite clear the thing that he likes. He had captured the enemy king called Decapolis. And the actual tombstone says this. He had captured Decapolis and had brought his head to Trajan, the emperor, at Ranastorum. (coughs) So there's it in the text. Next slide, please. And here is the picture of it, or the picture before, I should say, the head is removed. And what you see there is, of course, Maximus with his horse jumping over, of course, Decapolis. And there he is with his shield. And if you look carefully, I'm not expecting you to see it, I'm just telling you what's there, is a dagger fallen at his side because Decapolis has just slit his throat and is gasping in his last breaths, breaths of air. And you can see, if you look carefully, his mouth is wide open because he does not want to be caught alive. And if you go to Rome and you see the monument to Trajan, this is the emperor under which all this happened, you have again on the emperor's monument Decapolis holding the head of this guy, which he subsequently uh, cut off, presenting it to the emperor. Now that's how you did it. The term that's used for this is called the cursus honorum, the course of honours. And as I said, it moves from the least important to the most important, whether it's the positions you held, whether it's the victories you've had, and you then try and capture it all, if you can, in one spectacular little event that sums up your career. Nothing unusual here. This type of boasting is how it is done in the ancient world. If you were an emperor, you did it the same way. If you were a pantomime performer going from city to city, you do it the same way. 
If you're an athlete going from competition to competition, you do it the same way. If you're a local official in the city, you do it the same way. Greco-Roman culture was boastful. Now, why am I telling you this? The first thing I just want to make the point to you is that living in such a city would have been very difficult for early Christian believers because it is a city preoccupied with the quest for status and honour. And this has rubbed off on the Philippians themselves. Don't forget, they are descendants of military veterans. There have been new veterans coming into the town and you imbibe your culture. You become like that. It's very hard to break out of the mould. So we find out, for example, in Philippians 1.15, it is true that some preach Christ not out of envy and rivalry, that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. See what's happening here? (coughs) Paul's in jail, he's off the scene. Other leaders in the church are saying, great, time for us to take over. Time for us to rise up the ladder and assume the post that Paul has left. What's different between that and the world in which they live? Nothing. Go to verse 2-3. Paul says there, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's Paul's summation of their culture. Ambition and conceit. Paul is right. They've been influenced by those attitudes. And notice that Paul says, again in verse 4, not looking to your own interests. You see, Greco-Roman culture was all about the worship of oneself. Now, of course, it's good to know that with the impact of the gospel, humility is now a prized virtue in our culture and we do not suffer from this problem anymore. Oh, actually, we do. Ken was absolutely right. We live in the world of the virtual selfie and we construct hyped-up online versions of our very ordinary lives, actually, for public consumption and present them in the most extraordinary way. We compete for the attention of other people in a crowded media market and we try to find our significance by mimicking the lives of the bold and beautiful that we secretly envy. You see, our virtual news stories and all the social platforms that we have are ourselves. Each media release that we do each day, perhaps twice a day, is authored by ourselves and it's consumed by ourselves and our followers, our likes. And there is no time, ultimately, for anyone else 
in this cold and calculating world of self. Okay, here's the problem. How does Paul counter this world of self? How does he counter this world of inflated boasting in human achievement? And the answer is, is that he sets out the example of Christ. Once again, key point to listen to. And what he does is that he models his response on the boasting culture of the day. Except what he does is he turns it upside down. Instead of, just by way of revision, going up the course of honour where you had your posts from the least important to the most important, your battles from the least important to the most important, and then your picture that sums it all up about your greatness, me, 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 and after that, me. What Paul does is to go progressively in a series of steps explaining the ministry of Jesus and saying that each step was a step down, a step down in status and a step towards shame and a step to absolute catastrophe. And he's making fun of the whole thing, pricking the balloon of self-importance and helping us to see how God operates and how God evaluates this whole system that was part of the Greco-Roman world. (coughs) So instead of having a course of honours, and in the Latin it was called a cursus honorum, there was a term for it, Paul sets out a cursus podorum, a course of shame. And what is extraordinary is that there are seven steps downwards in this course of shame. Now what I'm going to be doing in this uh, sermon, which has been already going on for a little while, is to focus particularly on verses 5 to 8. And you'll notice that in, straight up in verse 5, where Paul starts is with the extraordinary status of Christ. <coughs> and Paul starts with the glory that Jesus always had as the eternal son. So before he came to the world, this is Jesus' identity. And notice what he says. He says two things about him in verse 6. He says, says first of all, that he's in the very nature of God. First point. And then the second thing he says about them is that he has equality with God. Now I'm going to unpack each little phrase for us. First of all, being in the very nature of God. What's Paul saying? Well, he's saying that he has the divine nature, obviously. He's saying that he has the divine majesty. He has the divine power as the eternal son of God who has existed from infinity. And in fact, when you look at Paul's letters, it's unpacked more. Paul, in his letters, in Romans and in Titus and in 2 Thessalonians, calls Paul three times God. Moreover, in 1 Corinthians and also in Colossians, he says that the entire universe 
was made through Jesus. An extraordinary claim to be made about a crucified man. He says again in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God. (coughs) And then again in Colossians he says that Jesus is the fullness of God. The fullness of God dwells in him. Let's just ponder that for a moment. When we look at Jesus, are we seeing 65% of God? 73% of God? 90% of God? 99.9% of God? All are wrong. When we look at Jesus, we are seeing God 100% and God dwells in him in his fullness. So Jesus has the same uh, status as God. And secondly, we have the next little phrase. He is equal to God. What's meant by that? means that he is the same honour. means that he has the same prerogatives. It means he has the same status. It means he has the same authority. It means he has the same powers. There is no sense of inferiority here to God the Father. And yet, as he's now going to unpack it, and I'll unpack it for you, there is a sevenfold humbling that goes on in Jesus becoming a human being. Now let me just state this very clearly. Jesus, in humbling himself, did not cease to be God. He remains the eternal Son of God. When you see him, as Jesus reminded Philip in John chapter 14, Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus says back to Philip, have I been with you so long that you do not know me? When you look at Jesus, you see the Father. In John 8, Jesus can say, before Abraham was, I am. An astonishing quote. The I am quote there is the name of God. I am who I am. Comes from Exodus 3.14. He is claiming the covenantal identity of God. And yet, he does not stop being God and yet becomes dependent as a human being on the Father, obedient as a human being to the Father, refusing to claim his rights and privileges choosing instead to go the way of the cross. Now I'm going to move through each of this humbling that Jesus undergoes and uh, one could have one sermon on each one of these phrases. They are so important but I can only just say a few very brief things in each case. What is the first humbling? The first humbling comes in the second part of verse 6. Notice what's said. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I look at my Bible and I notice it says he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, um, what does this mean? 
Some people have said there's a contrast going on between Adam and Christ here, whereas Adam sought to have equality with God, Jesus, unlike Adam, remained obedient to God and did not seek equality with him. Now, that's a vastly stupid idea. That's not the contrast at all. He has equality with God. Paul has already spelt that out. So what's he saying? What he's saying is this, that Jesus did not cling on to his equality with God. He did not cling on to it as if it was a prize or a treasure that he had to retain at all costs to be held there firm in his fist or else. No. He let it slip from his hands. He became subject to the Father. He placed himself under the authority of his Father. And he perfectly obeyed him for his mission into this dark, dark world. Humbling number one. Second humbling comes in the first part of verse 7. He made himself nothing. Literally, it means he emptied himself. What's being said? Emptied himself of being God? No. We've already dealt with that. Rather, he renounced his rank. Rather, he renounced his privilege. Rather, he renounced his rights. Rather, he renounced his powers as the eternal son of God and became totally dependent on the Father. Never experienced that before. He was equal to God. He was God himself. This is highly unusual. Third humbling, second part of verse 7. He took the very nature of a servant. I think he's referring there to Isaiah 53. That he became that servant that is described in that wonderful passage. A man not esteemed, a man stricken and rejected by his contemporaries. A man led to the slaughter like a passive sheep. A man of sorrows. That's what he became. We only see the servant when we look at Jesus. We do not see the eternal son. Only very occasionally did the disciples get a little glimpse of that. Remember, of course, in the transfiguration, uh, Jesus went up on the mountain. He was speaking there to, of course, Elijah and to Moses, as one does. Not of your human being, but of the eternal son of God, you do. And remember that he suddenly became blindingly bright and the three disciples were absolutely terrified. Why? Because they had seen the eternal glory that Jesus had always had as the son who goes back in infinite time with the father who always was there, who was there at creation and beyond. And yet when we look at him, All we see is the servant, nothing else. We do not realise who he really is. The fourth humbling comes in the third part of verse 7. He is made in human likeness. What does that mean? It means that Jesus, for the first time ever, experiences the limitations of humanity. 
The creator of the universe has become one of the creatures of the universe. A human being. Something again he's never experienced. So he experiences finitude. experiences limitation. He experiences tiredness. He experiences ignorance. Remember in that pressing crowd scene in Matthew 5, the woman with the hemorrhage reaches out and touches his uh, cloak. And Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples say, what do you mean? It's a big crowd. But it's the shock of Jesus. And he now doesn't know everything. Suddenly, he's a human being like the rest of us. He can be powerless. Villagers reject him. No cures were performed there. Why? Because he is dependent upon the Father working. He cannot just decide to go and to change people like that anymore. He's dependent upon the Father's power. And sometimes it seems to be powerless. He faces daily what we face. And as Paul reminds us in Romans 8.3, he's found in the likeness of sinful flesh. That means he experienced all the frustrations of a fallen world, temptation and the opposition of Satan. But with one difference, he did it all without sin. He remained perfectly obedient to the Father. 2 Corinthians and twice in Hebrews, the writers of those letters bring out the sinlessness of Jesus. Fourth humbling. Now we move on to the fifth humbling. And we see that in the first part of verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man. So recapitulating what he's saying, Paul says he humbled himself. That is one of the most important sentences in the history of Western civilization. I'm not kidding. Say it again. It's one of the most important sentences in the history of Western civilization. Because what we see here is a full frontal attack on human boasting in the Greco Roman world. The Greco Roman world despised humility, it was weakness, it was the characteristic of a slave. And Jesus humbled himself. In appearance and behaviour, he was like everyone else. Jesus, the carpenter's son from downtown Nazareth, that humble little insignificant village. He was the one who changed the water into the wine at Cana in John 4, except no one else realised it. Except the wine waiters and the disciples. And the disciples, of course, were the only ones that realised the glory behind it. And all the rest of the guests just went home, happily sozzled by the most beautiful of wines, not realising who had really been with them. Who was with them? Jesus? No. God himself. He humbled himself. Only Jesus can say, truly, as he does in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight to 30, 
Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. That's as far as we read, ladies and gentlemen. We do not go on to the second part of the verse. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Well, that sounds good. And then he says, For I am gentle and humble in heart. I'm the example of gentleness. I'm the example of humility. Then, if you learn that from me, you'll find rest for your souls. So there's the fifth humbling. Sixth humbling. Verse 8b. He became obedient to death. It's a funny phrase, isn't it? He became obedient to death. One thing that's certain about my life is that I can't choose whether I'm going to die or not. I'm going to die whether I like it or not. I might decide to top myself and bring it on early. I might decide by all kinds of medical interventions to try to extend my life as long as I can, but I'm going to die. But this verse is saying that Jesus had a choice whether he would die or not that Jesus could have gone on living forever. (coughs) Why is that? Because he's the sinless one. He did not face judgment for God because of his sin. He was Adam, as it were, before the fall, and eternity stretched out in front of him. But instead, he became obedient to death For our sake, his death became our death because of our sin. He became obedient to death. And then the last humbling, the most catastrophic one of all. I don't know if you're into poetry, but what Paul's done in the Greek so far is in this hymn-like, and it is a hymn-like structure. He's had three verses, one, two, three, or three lines. Then he's had another three, one, two, three, and we think, oh, this is cool, there's going to be another three. No. (coughs) What comes is this little shocking little verse that ruins it all. Even death on a cross. Remember in the inscription of Maximus, you had the picture at the top of his victory. That's what he wanted you to concentrate on. This is what Paul wants us to concentrate on. And it's the catastrophic result of his self-humbling. Here Paul drops the bombshell, the picture that sums it all up. And it's not a picture of glory like Maximus' picture on the monument, but it's a picture of, listen carefully, deep social shame. It's not about the pain of crucifixion and so on. I could think of worse deaths than crucifixion. It's about the shame of crucifixion. It's a crucifixion on a Roman cross by Roman soldiers who are the audience of Philippi. Crucifixion was a punishment reserved for rebellious slaves, 
The Carthaginians reserved it for their failed generals who lost battles. The cross was always erected in a public thoroughfare to shame the crucified and Roman citizens were never punished with crucifixion. It was the most shameful death of all that the Romans could come up with. Next slide, please. Please look at this. It's very rare to see what non-Christians thought of Christians in the first century AD, but here is our chance. This is a graffiti. And you can see some in the middle of the uh, bottom of the page there, some sort of scribble. That's writing. (coughs) And what it says is this. Alexamenos worships his God. Now, who's Alexamenos? He's the guy on the left. And he's a Christian. This is an anti-Christian graffiti. Graffito. And who's the God that he worships? There he is in the middle. Can you see him? It's a crucified man. And can you see that his arms are spread out, his body is there on the cross, and he's wearing a donkey's head. Extraordinary. Why the donkey's head? Because everyone knows going back to the little pantomime troops that go around, around the ancient world, city by city, in the little plays that are played out in those little pantomime troops, on comes to the stage a figure, and he's called Donkey Man. And he wears a big donkey's head, and the whole crowd ridicules him, and the actors on the stage slap him around the face. So the non-Christian who did this says, here's your foolish, ridiculous God that you worship, Alexamenos, donkey man, a figure of fun, a figure of ridicule who deserves to be slapped around on the cross. That's your God. Fools. 1 Corinthians 1. Paul preaches thee, foolishness of the cross. So there's the seventh humbling, even death on a cross. Well, let's just move along a little bit. We've seen the seventh, seven steps downwards, the seven steps of self-lowering, the seven steps of shame, the seven steps of dishonour. hope that's uh, becoming apparent. And what we now see in verses 9 to 11, and I'm really skipping through these very quickly, is the fact that God intervenes. It's not Jesus. He doesn't decide, gee, well, it's all over now, I'll just raise myself from the dead. No, he's dependent upon the Father. God intervenes. And he reverses Christ's shame. And he overturns in the process the worldly values. So God intervenes. That's who acts in this context. Jesus remains dependent upon God for the vindication of his ministry. And notice that the status that's given them. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Kurios, it is in the Greek. 
And that was the Greek word that was given to Yahweh in the Old Testament. Who's Jesus? He's the risen Lord. He's Yahweh himself. Who's Jesus? Listen to this text from Isaiah. Isaiah 45, verse 25. Verse 23. By myself I have sworn, that's Yahweh speaking, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. So there's an Old Testament text that Paul just transfers over to Jesus and says, by the way, who's this person? It's Jesus. And by the way, in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. So there's his status. And lastly, notice how it ends. In verse 11 at the very end, who gets all the glory? Jesus? No! It's God the Father. It's all redirected towards him. Jesus is made the ruler of the universe, but it's to the glory of the Father. All right, and a few now applications from our passage. So what's the secret to Christian growth from this passage? Uh, As you know, I'm I'm a scholar and I tinker away at writing books and uh, I've decided to write a new book as a result of this sermon and I'm going to call it Humility and How I Achieved It. And I'm going to have a follow-up book, Humility and How I Blew It. You see, if we realise how deeply sinful we are, we can only be humble in front of God. And if we look at the self-lowering, the seven steps of shame, the seven steps of dishonour of Christ, who was the one, glorious one, above all, and if he lowered himself, so should we. And what's his driving factor? It's the glory of God. So, going to our theme. First little comment about our theme. As we die and rise in Christ, and what I mean by that is as we incorporate it into the death, which we've heard about, and resurrection of Jesus, which we've heard about, what change does that make to us how we live? And here's the answer. We are driven by the example of Jesus. We are driven by his humility and we are driven by his motivation, which is the glory of God. That's the bedrock of our personal growth. That will keep us teachable in front of God. That's the bedrock of our relationships with each other, humility and a corporate desire that together we all glorify God. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12. Beautiful verse. Verse 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Now you've said that. You don't have to say it again. Oh yes you do. Verse 16. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. 
Do not be conceited. Be willing to associate with people of low position. I wonder who they are in Mortlake. I wonder who they are in Concord. I wonder who they are across the bridge that we drive across from Ride into our suburb. I don't know, but we have to be willing to associate with such people. So the importance of humility. The second application is the importance of obedience. The other constant in Jesus' life, apart from the glory of God, is obedience to the Father, in the good times and in the bad times. He was about his Father's business. What does he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Luke 22, verse 42. You see, it's not about the amount of books I've written. It's not about the amount of journal articles and book chapters that I've published. It's not about the amount of theological lectures I've delivered. It's not about the amount of youth camps I spoke at in the past. It's not about the sermons and Bible studies I've delivered. It certainly isn't about my good looks. All this is helpful, but it's irrelevant. At Judgment Day, God will ask me and you one question. Here it is. Get it right. Did you obey my son Jesus? Chilling question. Did you obey my son Jesus? And you see, we all fall short, don't we? We're in desperate trouble. Of course, as many books and all that other stuff I've done, I keep blowing it day by day. Did you obey my son, Jesus? Yes, I tried, Lord Jesus. Father, but gee, I sort of blew it a bit along the way. A lot, in fact. And God will say, don't worry. It's not about your obedience. It's about the obedience of my perfect son who obeyed the Father, me, perfectly. And his perfection is transferred into your bank account. Lighten up. You do not have to worry. You are accepted in without accusation because of what he has done. So when we think about those terrible things of our past, and there are some terrible things of our past that we have done, and we continually go back to the guilt trip, the endless cycle of the tape, that goes in in our minds about this or that factor. We have to say to ourselves, God no longer looks at that. God looks at the perfection of Jesus. And when our life is crumbling in front of us now, and we just say, oh, what kind of Christian I am, we have to say, that's true. But God's not looking at that. He's looking at the perfection of Jesus. And when we're worried about whether we'll actually make it as a Christian in heaven, we have to realise that God will throw in, throw the door totally open and say, come in, you are welcome because of my son, Jesus.
Last thing is the importance of shame in Christian discipleship. (laughs) What a terrible thing to say. Uh, Shame is what destroys us, isn't it? According to our culture. And yet remember what Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You see, it's a cross of shame. It's a cross you die on. It's a cross of dishonour. It's not a gold cross that you wear around your neck. Not knocking that. And I'm just saying to you that we will increasingly feel this shame in Australia as our culture turns away from Christ. And the church is seen by some in our culture already as a positively evil institution. And some of that has been brought on us by the tragic revelations of the Royal Commission and so on. At the very least, the gospel of Christ will be mocked, made fun of by comedians on uh, TV and in shows and social commentators and uh, by the everyday public. But this was the case in the first century AD. Remember the fun made of Alexamenos in that graffiti. Alexamenos worships his god, donkey man. So how to respond in this culture? The answer is we pray the prayer of Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not, know not what they do. We pray what he says, we, we, we act out what he says about responding to opposition in Luke 6. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back, because you certainly won't from your enemies. So that's how we overcome our public shaming. And we can see the shame of the cross as actually the entry into glory and the entry into eternal life with the Father and his risen Lord and Son. Amen.